try and wrap everything up uh, that we've that we've talked about that we've looked at. Not so much a review, but but try to bring things together a little bit. So we focused on the passage in Ephesians, the passage we would all think of, the passage that any of us would go to when we think about spiritual warfare, the armor of God. Uh, and we understand that it's his armor that he gives us. Last week we looked at prayer. And I just want to echo uh, that what Clayton expounded upon last week, it, it really just can't be emphasized enough in the battle of spiritual warfare. Because if you're, if you're not praying, I can almost guarantee that you're trying to do things in your own strength. That you're just trying to, you've all seen the Bob Newhart skit, right? Just stop it, right? That's, that's kind of our approach. If you haven't seen Stop It, because some of you are laughing and have seen it, and some of you haven't, you need to go to YouTube after church and, and watch that. But it's this approach of just, just buck up and, and, and quit doing what you're doing or start doing what you need to be doing. And prayer is the, it's the mechanism of asking for help, seeking help. It demonstrates humility that we, we don't have the resources that we need. It shows that it isn't just about our willpower to stop it, but that we need to understand and apply God's word. We need to rest in the power of his spirit working in us. We need prayer to resist temptation. We need prayer to endure trials. And we need prayer, most importantly, to commune with our Redeemer. Because again, if we're not communing with Him, I can almost guarantee that you're trying to do it in your own strength. And the reason I can say guarantee is because I know this from personal experience. (laughs) So prayer is so key. Now, as a way of drawing everything together, um, I'm going to consider an example that is in the realm of spiritual warfare that all of us will uh, deal with at some point in our lives, and that is the subject of death. Uh, I realize that's not exciting to think about, uh, but the fact is all of us will die. Unless Jesus comes back, all of us are going to die. But maybe uh, more so death is something that we've all dealt with already. The people that we love, people that we care about, we have already dealt with the experience of death now, for us, we often think of our own deaths as something that we'll have an awareness of, that we're just going maybe to grow old and die slowly. And, but we have to recognize that death could come suddenly, could come without warning. We may not even know it. And so thinking about death, considering what our life counts for in part, how an end is coming, although we know that it's not the end, Yet there's still things like separation, loss, grief associated with death, particularly of others. It has a way of bringing us to a point of our awareness of our own uh, finiteness and our, 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 the fact that we're dust, the fact that we're frail, the fact that we don't control our own destinies, the fact that we're not all-powerful. In his book, uh, Safe and Sound, David Pallison gives two experiences around the, the uh, arena of death. The first uh, was when one of his daughters was 16 years old. She had a very serious diagnosis that could have led to her death. She was healed, but it brought the family face-to-face with death. Uh, the second account is his own death, and it's, that's because when he was writing the book, he had already been diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. 
he died in uh, June 2019, and I think, well, I know the book was published after that because it says in the book he died June 2019. So um, this, this was fresh for him. This was something he was really in the face of. Instead of reading or trying to retell his accounts, uh, I encourage you to read the book. It's, I think there's still copies on the book table. It's really thin, and these two chapters on death may be four to five pages each. They're, they're not very long. Uh, but it just it, that's one of those things that you kind of have to read the experience itself. And rather than me trying to retell it, I'm just going to use an experience in my own life um, to, to kind of frame what he, he shares in the book. One truth that is dear in the struggles as we face in life, whether it's death or whatever trial we face, is that our Savior is one who is acquainted with grief who intimately knows our struggles and our sorrows. He's not a God who is far off. In Psalm 56, David writes, You have, counted, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? These truths are incredible comfort when you are in the throes of trials, when you are up against obstacles that seem uh, beyond your ability to face, that your God is aware of the, the sorrow, the difficulty, and the struggles. I, I want to say at the outset that although I'm going to talk about death a little bit or the face of death a little bit, the the application, I think, fits in almost any trial that you could be in uh, because there's a sense of deathness in all of sin and the effects of sin. So whether you're dealing with a physical diagnosis that is the result of being in a fallen world, right? If there wasn't sin, we wouldn't get sick. Whether you're dealing with uh, you know, relational conflict, uh, job difficulties, you know, work relationship, coworker kind of stuff, or neighbor, or uh, spouse, or children, or family member beyond that. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, the the principles here still apply in terms of how we face this and how we battle it. So I hope you'll see those connections um, and be encouraged by it. In 2007, Leslie and I were living in Gainesville, Georgia. We had uh, moved back from Birmingham a couple years before. She was working as an elementary school teacher. And I, at that time, was teaching or working at Mission to the World. And we had been in kind of a state of repositioning our lives, resettling <laughs> uh, after uh, three difficult years in seminary. Our wheels had kind of come off the cart, so to speak, uh, when we went off to school. Uh, that began five years earlier when I had been, uh, I don't want to say recruited, but but kind of encouraged to come to a seminary where my best friend's dad was the president, and he wanted me to come and develop their distance education component and, oh, get your MDiv while you're there. Uh, sounded like a good deal because we already had one child and one on the way, so that was what we did where we went. But upon arriving, uh, and I won't go into all the details, but I'll just say that what we were told and what we received was about half in terms of compensation. And so from day one, we started going backwards and we began accruing debt. 
And about three and a half years in, I was about three quarters through my MDiv. The work had taken over my schooling. I wasn't really doing anything with school, uh, maybe one class at a time. Uh, debt was piling up. We now had three children. Something had to change. And so we prayed and thought and wrestled, and it seemed like Leslie uh, was the better option. I was kind of unemployable in ministry. At that point, I had fully transitioned. That's a horrible phrase now. Um, I had um, fully moved <laughs> to a Reformed and Covenantal perspective. Uh, I had not grown up that way. So in the Reformed and Covenantal camp, I was three-quarters through my seminary degree, which meant basically I was unemployable. Uh, Presbyterians didn't want me because I wasn't done with my degree. The Baptists wouldn't take me back because I didn't agree with all the theology anymore. So Leslie went back to work. The plan was for me to stay home. Uh, our kids were at the time, I think, six, four, and three. So that was um, the hardest job I ever had. And we, um, we began to put the pieces back together. Thought I would get a part-time job. Thought I would work on my degree via distance. None of that happened. Getting a part-time job proved more difficult than I thought. And so... I ended up, an opportunity came open at MTW, and I went to work there. Um, I won't go into that whole experience, but the first year for me at MTW was, it was incredibly difficult. It was, a, it was an entry-level job, and it was for entry-level peanuts. So I was really struggling with my inability to provide for my family, the fact that I was working in a cubicle, um, doing a job that basically kids right out of college did, and... Um, just felt like I needed to do more, could do more, and just had a had a direct supervisor that um, enjoyed having somebody like me uh, under her belt, and so I, I just felt demeaned every day. It was just a, a very very difficult experience, but we were getting traction. We were starting to see the pieces begin. You know, we were we were starting to deal with the debt and moving forward and. Um, Back to 2007, Leslie began experiencing some physical symptoms that led to uh, an appointment for a colonoscopy. And because of the ages of the kids, I love my mother-in-law, but um, she preferred and made it clear that she would rather go with Leslie to the appointment than, um, than stay home with the three kids because they were six, four, and three. So um, I took a vacation day, stayed home with the kids. Uh, the only reason we thought somebody needed to go with Leslie was because of the anesthesia, uh, that, that she would need somebody to drive her home. We were thinking maybe this is Crohn's disease or IBS or something like that. And so while I was home, I hear this commotion in the bedroom, and I go in. Esther is three years old. I can pick on her. She's not here. She's three years old, and she is standing in a pool. She just had an accident. Uh, they were playing, and she didn't want to stop playing, and she had made a mess on the carpet. And so, you know, in that moment, I was so full of joy that day, using my vacation time to, to, to you know, have to stay home and try and juggle things. And so there I was, stewing in anger and self-pity, uh, down on my knees, mopping up the carpet. And the phone rang, and Leslie said, how are things going? And I said, fine. And I said it in a way that she would know that I was not happy. I wanted her to know that, that, that my day was not going the way that I wanted it to go. 
And she heard me, but she uh, said, well, the doctor um, found two polyps and a lesion, and he says it's cancer. And at that moment, everything just kind of stopped. I mean, your world does really kind of come to a standstill at a moment like this. I realized a long time later that it was really a mercy of God that I was doing what I was doing because I immediately began to just blubber, you know, just weep. And um, and the kids couldn't see me because I was down on my hands and knees. And uh, Anyway, things like a uh, little potty on the carpet was not so significant after all. Your priorities really change in a moment like that. Well, I went and joined, uh, let's say the doctor's office, her dad came over to stay with the kids, and we found out right away that the tumor was the size of a golf ball. They wanted to do surgery immediately. They wanted to get her that day into scans for lungs and liver and all the normal places that colon cancer goes. And this started a year-long ordeal that began with that colectomy. They go in and take out uh, about 12 inches of her colon and the tumor, and then... um, there were uh, 12 weeks of radiation with oral chemo and then six months of traditional chemo after that. David Pallison writes, Facing a dire diagnosis, there are many ways to lose the spiritual battle, reverting to the darkness of flesh, world, and devil. Will we go blind to God, becoming absorbed in the immediate threat? Again, he's talking about a physical diagnosis as he writes this, and I'm relating it to something we experience with a physical diagnosis, but apply this to whatever battle you're in. Will we, will we worry, feeling an undercurrent of anxiety or even stark fear? Will we obsess about medical intervention or whatever the solution you think is to your problem? Will we go into denial? Will we be numb or we, will, rather, will we numb our apprehension by escaping into work, TV, or drink, escapism? Will we get irritable with each other, exacerbating the tension by bickering? Will we become stoic, short-circuiting, honest human need with a quick, God is in control, that is more Islamic than it is psalmic? Will we pray repetitively or even superstitiously? There are many ways to revert to the darkened understanding that expresses alienation from the life of God. That alienation from the life of God is a reference to Ephesians 4 where Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Paul's exhorting the Ephesians, not to live like the world. And what is the inference by that exhortation? That our struggle is to live like the world. Our struggle is to function in the darkness of, of, of whatever the circumstances, circumstance is. I can tell you that every question that, that Pallison asks in that list, I can think of an example of struggling with that in that time. I can think of many of those examples of struggles in recent times. What we run to, what, where we go when life hits us in the face, tells us where our actual faith is, tells us where our trust lies. Uh, initially, I remember experiencing denial of Leslie's diagnosis, and I didn't even realize that she corrected me on it. 
uh, when I got to the doctor's office and we talked briefly, we were trying to get everything in order and um, decided I needed to let my family know. And so we stepped out on the sidewalk and called my parents. And I think I said something uh, like, you know, he found two polyps and a lesion and he thinks it may be cancer, but they will send it off for a biopsy. And Leslie, I think she may have even grabbed my arm. She interrupted me. She said, no doctor who's been doing this this long is going to risk his reputation by telling me that it's cancer. He knows what he saw. And she was right. No doctor who had been doing, he was a seasoned doc. uh, But I didn't want to believe it. I had hope that maybe, maybe they'll send it off for biopsy. Maybe it won't come back cancerous. After that, I started thinking of who I could call. We had a, a friend who was a surgeon, and she in, ended up doing the surgery for Leslie's colectomy. But I was thinking of, like, I wanted to go into action. You know, I wanted to get things and solutions lined up. And Leslie lovingly helped me stop <laughs> and understand that I was not the Savior. Uh, in this moment, uh, it wasn't for, up to me to fix things. Again, writing about their similar experience, Pallison states, the inner enemy was revealed in the passions of our flesh, the desires of the body and the mind. Our own hearts manifest a sympathy for the devil. Would we insist on healing? Would we demand a comfortable life? Would we place our deepest hopes in doctors? Would we be gripped by fear? We would become obsessive, angry, escapist, or anxious if we were driven by the tyranny of the desires of body and mind. And this is the battle, the spiritual battle that we're up against when we face hard things, difficult things, trials, sorrows, griefs, or even death, is that our temptation is to run to the things that are natural for us in, in, in our sinfulness, to, to, to go to anger, to go to denial, to go to escapism, to go to worry. As our ordeal moved forward, um, and I had to, uh, um, I was trying to find some some details because a lot of this stuff, you know, you don't remember details. And so I had a, um, I wrote a blog back then to kind of, uh, I don't know, just wrote things down, helped me. And so I, I went back and looked and kind of uh, reread some of the things that I had written and was reminded of a number of things. One was how everybody sprang into action. Um, and, you know, I, I, re- I do remember kind of finding it unbelievable because it wasn't just the church we were a part of. We had been part of a church. The assistant pastor went to plant a church out of that. We had just gone with his launch team. So this was not even a church yet that we were now a part of. There was another nearby PCA church that we had relationships with that we would later become part of. Um, there were two churches in the Atlanta area. One was two hours away that I had served in in recent years. And people from all of those churches came to our house. Uh, the one church that we had not even come to yet, but we, we knew some people there, had friends there. Um, they, people from that church that we had not even met came. So here we had complete strangers in our house bringing us food, uh, coming to do things for us. Um, one particular friend... Uh, whose path we had not crossed in many years, and it's a much, there's much more to the story. I'm not going to go into it today, but she came back into our lives at this point. And it was really uh, an incredible grace, not only what she did, but just even her coming back into our lives. And she was the friend who came. She didn't have to ask what to do. She didn't have to be told what to do. She just showed up and did stuff. 
Like, she literally would just come in the front door. You almost didn't know she was there. And she just did stuff. And it was all the right stuff because I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what needed to be done. And Leslie, during much of the treatment, was in a lot of pain. She didn't want to be talked to. I mean, just everything kind of agitated, bothered her. And so there were times where we couldn't bother her. And so Cindy just showed up and did things and just got things done. Um, In that process, she renewed that relationship with Leslie and kind of forged a new friendship. We'd had a a different kind of friendship many years ago, and then uh, now this new friendship. I can tell you still to this day they talk every week, if not every day. They still have that friendship. If you think spiritual warfare is only on the defensive, you miss what happened here in our own experience and what Pallison talks about. In this reality of cancer diagnosis for us at this point in our lives, their hands and feet of Jesus' actions, where they were coming to meet our physical needs, was truly like a balm on our wounds. And I'm not just speaking of the wound of cancer. Leslie and I have have talked through, because we've, we've been through a few things, and we've often talked about the fact that when you go through things like cancer, uh, it's hard, but it's also, it's easier in some ways because everybody comes to your side. Everybody knows it. Everybody shows sympathy. Um, and it's, there's nothing taboo about cancer. But when you go through other messes, kind of messes that you don't talk about, but are very real, sometimes just as heavy, um, I think those are sometimes harder uh, because you don't have people coming around. People don't understand what you're going through. You don't have the, the balm that this was for us and the undergirding and the strengthening. You're just kind of in the mess alone. So this is why we need to be intentional and not wait for someone to have a cancer diagnosis to be on the offensive in spiritual warfare, to look for opportunities to care for one another, You may just observe something very simple. It may not even be a need. You just may know that that one person appreciates this and you do it for them. It can be as simple as sending somebody a text. I'm praying for you today. Mike Malone has begun doing that with me on Sunday mornings. I just got it right before Sunday school started. I can't tell you how encouraging it is to receive a message that I'm praying for you in this specific way. It doesn't take long to do that, to pray or to send the message. Uh, It can be a huge encouragement. There was a fight for faith through the actions of other believers that strengthened us in the battle. And one of the things that I forgot that reading the blog helped me remember was about three weeks, I think, it was a few weeks after the diagnosis. I wrote this blog post. I'd forgotten totally about it till this week, and I went back and saw it. Uh, and I wrote about how cold I had become to the institution of the church. Uh, I still love Jesus. I still love the body of Christ. But in terms of the mechanism, the institution of the church, because of what had happened to us in seminary, I, just, I was just having a hard time. I was hurt. I was wounded. And this event is what God used. And what I wrote was, it was all of these people coming around us, coming to us, helping us, being the body of Christ to us, 
that kind of did what John experiences in the passage we're looking at this morning in Revelation 21, where he's carried up onto a high mountain where he has a perspective. Uh, it was that for me. It carried me up and gave me a perspective of Christ's church to see the beauty of it. And that in and of itself was strengthening. It was cinching up the, what was true, the belt of truth for me, that Christ was for me, not against me. And he was demonstrating that in this care for us. When you think of the idea of battle, what you often envision is the conflict. If you think of spiritual battle and modern-day warfare, you think of guns shooting, missiles launching. If you think of more Roman terms, it may be arrows and spears. But when we think of battle, that's where our mind goes. But if you talk to any soldier, you'll find out that there's a lot that goes into battle beyond the actual fighting. There's not only training and equipping, there's reinforcement and supply. Somebody's got to feed the troops. Somebody's got to equip the troops. Somebody's got to clothe the troops, transport the troops. And I realize the illustration doesn't hold up through all of this, but my point is, is that sometimes the, in the realm of battle, I think we're doing things that are that's strengthening others that's more in this kind of logistical realm. Showing kindness, mercy, care, just demonstrating the love of Christ that has been shown for us. In Pallison's book, he mentions Psalm 28 as a source of great strength for his family as they face this trial with his daughter. The opening verses say, To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas, uh, pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. When difficulties come into our lives, particularly these kind of earth-shattering difficulties, the things that really rock us, such a prayer resonates with us. When everything's going fine, and the reason I know this is from personal experience, when everything's going fine, you can read Psalm 28 and be like, "Mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, when you're in the mess, you read that and you weep because it hits you in a way that doesn't hit you when everything's going okay. And, and I think the reason it hits us in such an acute way is the need resonates with us. When we feel the need, we want to beg God to hear us and to respond. And we can do this because he has the power to respond. He's promised to hear and respond. In the face of death, he is the one who is powerful enough to do so. He's not bound to respond in the way that we want. That may be at times the hardest thing for us, but we trust him to do all things well, even if those things bring greater pain. In such a time, certain struggles emerge in our own heart that serve as enemies. And what Pallison does is he, you know, after those opening words that David writes, he goes on to talk about, Actual enemies, he's describing, that are surrounding him. And Pallison said, you know, for them in this experience with their daughter, they weren't facing, people weren't the enemies. It was, uh, it, it was certainly the, the, the diagnosis, but it was more than that. It was the enemies within that emerged, the questions, the doubting, the spiritual battle within. The enemy will try to blind and confuse us, whispering lies that we have to resist believing. I wondered if Leslie would be healed. 
Uh, I wondered if the battle would last for years. I had a, a, a friend that we grew up together. We were the same age. She was diagnosed with cancer a few years before Leslie, and her battle was still ongoing, and it was ravaging her body. Um, she finally got some relief some years later, but now it's back, and this is probably the end for her. And so I, I just wondered, is this going to be... Is this, is this going to be our experience? I wondered if Leslie would die. I didn't know. I wondered about the kids and how they would process what was happening and what would happen, the unknowns. There were times where the battle was particularly difficult. Uh, for example, the surgery, they said, you know, they're going to go in and do this and she'll have a day or two and she'll get out. And It turned into three times that long in the hospital, I think, before she got out. She was in almost a week. Um, radiation, I mentioned, uh, she would lay on her bed and like just writhe in pain and I couldn't do anything. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't, you couldn't even touch the bed because it just, anything just would disturb her noise, had to keep the kids out. Again, they were young, didn't really understand. One of the mercies in all of this is they really have no memory of this whole experience. Uh, during chemo, I remember her change in color. She looked different. She had the, the look, uh, as we call it. Um, she lost a lot of weight. Uh, she had a lot of weakness where she couldn't get out of bed. And so the battles here against anxiety, the battles against escapism and anger, sometimes come in surprising ways. And the battles for us have faded mostly, but they can and do still emerge. I remember the year we came here. Uh, Leslie started having these weird symptoms, and... Uh, the day that they began, she was coming to pick me up. Um, I had gone somewhere, had a rental car. I dropped it off over at the airport. So she was coming to pick me up. And when she pulled in the parking lot, she stopped. And I'm standing there. I think Anna Grace had ridden with me, and we're like, what's she doing? And she's just sitting there in the car. So finally, we you know, go over through the parking lot to her, and as I come and open the door, she's coming to and she begins telling me that this is like the third spell she's had that day. And she can hear, but her, she gets tunnel vision, and then her vision goes away, and she can't respond. Well, that was weird. Um, we began trying to figure out what was going on there. Uh, the symptoms worsened uh, until one day uh, after church, we had gone to Lowe's, just kind of walk around. And uh, while we were walking around, she, you know, had a full blackout, passed out. I caught her and decided to call 911, went to the hospital. They kept her overnight, ran a bunch of tests, sent her to more doctors, ran more tests, you know, heart monitors. You know how all this stuff goes when you're trying to find uh, what's wrong. Neither one of us said it to the other, but both of us were wondering, the cancer's back. You know, it, it's, it, it's back. Um, we finally figured out that wasn't it, thankfully, and it was, it was actually a vitamin deficiency that because of this vitamin you can lose neurological function or it affects neurological function. And so she gets a, a shot now every other week and that keeps her well. Um, but the point is, is that even when you think you've dealt with something spiritually, sometimes it comes back and it surprises you. And so in this life, as we face spiritual battles, as we face difficulties, um, Remain humble. Don't think that it's gone. Don't think that it can't pop back up and rear its ugly head. The battle can be right there in your face. 
Now, each of you has your own experience in the battles of life. Some are truly threatening. Some you may think of as more benign. But the questions are the same for all of us. Who will be our shepherd? Who will we run to? Where will we turn? Will our hope be found in medical advancements and cures? Will our happiness be rooted in our circumstances? Will we escape through trivial things to avoid facing reality? Will we grow angry because this, whatever this is, is not the way I dreamed my life would be? It is these battles, our everyday battles, in which we must run to our shepherd. We have to take up the sword of the Spirit and take God at His word. We have to gird ourselves with the belt of truth and believe what He said instead of the lies of the evil one. We have to take up the shield of faith, believing His promises now and for the future, including the hope of heaven. And we must pray at all times, calling out to the only one who can deliver us from whatever trial we face. A number of years later, after this experience with cancer, we went back and visited the original church that we had been a part of before the plant came out of that. And I preached a sermon on the kingdom of God that Sunday. I read from Isaiah 54. Sing, O barren woman, who did not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. I explained how the kingdom is often counterintuitive, the kingdom of God. It's often upside down. It often is a paradox. Uh, Whether we talk about cancer as a gift of healing for our souls or unjust incarceration as a stepping stone for Joseph to become a world leader used by God, to care for many, or the death of Jesus is the conquering blow of sin's power, presence, and penalty. God's economy, the way he works, is often one of paradox. You've heard me say this before. Uh, We see this over and over, not only in Scripture, but in our own lives. It's upside down. It's backwards from the way we think. The weak are strong. Those persecuted for righteousness' sake receive the kingdom. The cross is foolishness to the perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Five thousand are fed with just two fish and five loaves. An elderly and barren Sarah gives birth to baby Isaac well beyond her childbearing years. My point is is that the kingdom cannot be easily explained. We can't plug this into our spreadsheets. It doesn't show up in pie charts. It doesn't even fit into our strategic planning sometimes. God works in mysterious ways. Kingdom economics can only be understood through faith. And with faith, we see that he will save every one of his elect. None will get away. He will heal every body and every heart, no matter how broken we are. He will right every wrong, even when justice seems impossible. Faith gives us the eyes to see that the coming of Christ's kingdom changes everything. For us, uh, to fill in a little bit more of the story, during seminary, told you the wheels kind of came off. Uh, There was the financial component. Um, But there was more than that. There was the fact that I hid some of the financial component. I thought I was protecting Leslie. I thought I would just, you know, when we ran out of money, I told her the business was paying for everything. And the business did pay for everything. Just that the business had some credit cards that she didn't know about. And when all that came to light, you can imagine how that would go over. Um, that, was, that, was, that was tough. Um, I didn't realize it until years later she was telling someone else in front of me about our experience. And she said, 
We almost left separately. And I was so clueless. I didn't even know it. We were not only wounded from the lies that had been told to us by the person who promised us a certain salary and then was unwilling to do it. Um, We were hurt by the church. There was just a coldness there toward us about the situation. But we had also hurt each other in the process. And yeah, we were getting back on our feet financially. Um, We were moving in the right direction. It was slow. I can tell you, young people, if you ever get into debt, it, it does take twice as long to get out as it does to get in. It was true for us. Three and a half years to get into it took us seven years to pay it all off. Don't go into debt if you can help it. <laughs> uh, avoid it like the plague. Uh, but we were moving in the right direction, but our hearts were still wounded. Our hearts were still hurt. And I think our marriage was still struggling. And we didn't know it at the time. We wouldn't have said it at the time. It took us a few years to articulate this. But God used cancer to heal our marriage, to heal us. And that's not something we would wish for anybody. It's not a prescription we would give anybody else. But my point is, is that God used pain to bring healing. That was the upside-down nature of the kingdom. He used a terrible sickness to restore us to him and to each other. And there's a battle in coming and dealing with that, (laughs) in coming to those terms and realizing this is not just something, you know, we want to be fixed like a, like a prescription, like we intend a prescription. You know, in America, we really do have this weird view of medicine. Uh, we just, we think of medicine like the, the mechanic, you know, he goes and he plugs that little computer into your car and he gets a code and then he tells you that's what's wrong. And so he's going to, he's going to give you something. It's just going to fix it, right? We go to the doctor with that same expectation. Just tell me what's wrong and fix it. And as all of you know, especially the ones who are smiling, you know medicine doesn't work that way. Uh, there's a lot of uh, mystery and trying and practice and, and trials and, and challenges and so forth. Well, spiritually, we kind of we bring that over. And we treat our messes in life as like, God, just fix it. Just make it better. And we don't realize that often what he does to fix it and to make it better It's just like the cross, a messy, ugly, horrible thing that was the result of evil men who did this. God took that and used it to accomplish our redemption. And I'm not telling you that whatever mess you're in or whatever struggles you're facing, that the solution is something painful. But I'm saying it may be. And and, and the key is, is who's going to be your shepherd? Are you going to trust the shepherd to, maybe he will just fix it. Maybe he'll just resolve it. Maybe it'll all just go away. Or maybe he will bring something that is more like a rod. uh, And and it feels a little painful to go through. But that he then, when you have the perspective of looking back, can have used something very tragic, difficult, painful to bring healing and uh, restoration in, in your lives. Who will be your shepherd? That's the question I want us to have ringing in our ears as we go. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, would you, uh, would you help us see that you're the good shepherd? Would you help us to know, to know you, not just know that you are, but to know you as our shepherd? Would you help us come to you as our shepherd, knowing that you nourish, that you feed, that you care, 
that you lead us to green pastures. Lord, I pray for everyone here because I know everybody's got something they're up against. Would you help them to see that the battle that they're fighting is not a battle they fight alone. It's your battle. You're the conquering victor. You provide the armor. I pray that each of us would look to you in faith as we fight alongside, knowing that you are the victor. Help us to look to you in faith. Lord, make us dependent upon prayer instead of dependent upon our own willpower or strength. Humble us and bring us to the point where we're continually calling out to you for help. We recognize that you're our only hope. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.